Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to John, John chapter 5, uh, verses 39 through 47. That's going to be the text I'm going to read. Uh, as I mentioned earlier this morning, I'm, I'm going to, we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis, the whole book of Genesis. Uh, we're going to begin looking at the book of Genesis, and, and this morning is going to be more of an introduction uh, than focused on any one text, and it'll become clear in a moment why, we, why I chose to read John chapter 5, verses 39 to 47. But before I, I read that, uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray that you would speak, that you would speak and that we would listen and that we would hear and that we would do, that we would uh, receive your word and be changed by it. Even as we begin to approach the book of Genesis, we just pray for your blessing on this whole upcoming series of sermons as we uh, week after week, work through the book of Genesis. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would embolden us, that you would give us a clear sight of Jesus as he is on every page of the book of Genesis, that you would help us to see him in all of his glory, that you would help us to worship him, that you would help us to trust in him, that you would help us to rest in him, that you would help us to believe in what he has done more fully because of what you say in the book of Genesis. We pray that you would draw us near, Father, that you would draw us near to you to receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. We pray that you would draw us near and we pray that you would send us out that we would go out having come to this book, that we would go out changed people and people ready to be sought and light in the world, people ready to bear witness to your grace as we find it in the promises of Genesis and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would come and be with us this morning by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our scripture reading is from John chapter 5, verses 39 through 47. This is God's word. And these specifically are the words of Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Well, this is one of those moments where you are supposed to use words like embark. Right? Words that aren't quite everyday, 
that, that rise at least a little above the mundane. So today we embark on a journey through the book of Genesis. And, and Genesis is, I, I, think, I think, without question, uh, one of the greatest books ever written. Uh, it deals with the biggest themes in human life. It tells the story of the origin of the universe and the origin of humanity and the origin of sin, the origin of Israel and God's gracious plan to save a people for himself. Genesis situates us in the world. It sets the stage for everything that is to come in the Bible, everything that is to come in existence, really just everything that is to come, period. And Genesis is a, a literary masterpiece, right? The stories are artfully told and the themes are thoughtfully interwoven with, with conflict and tension and anticipation and hope. Genesis is also one of the most debated books of the Bible, right? People arguing over everything from the author and the date, its view of creation, its teaching on sin and brokenness, its historicity, its theology. And before we get into some of those questions this morning, I, I want to ask another question, which is why? Why this book? As I was preparing this sermon, uh, a mob stormed the Capitol in protest of the certification of electoral college results. You guys may have seen that on the news. And regardless of your view of those events, uh, you might think, uh, why spend time studying a 3,500-year-old book? Aren't there more important things going on? Shouldn't we be talking about politics? Or shouldn't we be talking about what's going on in our country? Shouldn't we be talking about the future of democracy? But as I was reading recently in, in a new book by a long-dead author, uh, we cannot deal with the social ills of the world that we can see until we deal with the realities of the world that we cannot see. Uh, we cannot deal properly with social realities until we understand properly spiritual realities. And the, the book of Genesis and the gospel of Jesus that flows from it is exactly what we need to live in a way that pleases God in the midst of what one of the disciples of Jesus called this crooked generation. We need to get grounded in spiritual realities and only that grounding will enable us to approach social ills. Not that spiritual things are merely a means to an end. They are not. Uh, but they are that which is fundamental. They are that which is primary. But as such, they are that in light of which everything else makes sense. And so this morning we begin to turn to the book of Genesis. Now, today, my intention was to look at three things, just three things. Uh, they aren't the kind, the kind of thing that we usually talk about or spend a lot of time talking about, except maybe once per book. But I thought that they would be helpful as we approach the book of Genesis. And though this morning, uh, as sometimes people say, this morning will be more teaching than preaching. Uh, but hopefully, like the book of Genesis itself, this morning will set the stage for the rest of our studies to come. And so, like I said, my intention was to look at three things. Genre, uh, what kind of book is this, the book of Genesis? Author, who wrote it? And then themes, what is it about? 
but we're actually only going to get through the first two, genre and author, and we'll save themes for next week. But if, if you're new here, if this is your, your first time, especially coming to All Souls, and, and this seems a bit uh, maybe dry or academic to you, uh, can I encourage you, come back. <laughs> come back. I, I hope that this will be helpful to everyone, but, but if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, I just need grace, I just need the gospel, I just want to get into the text, don't worry, we'll do that. Come back. Come back. The heart of our message, right, as a Christian church, is Jesus and His grace. This morning is we're going to be setting the stage for that. It's more of more of setting the stage than performing the play, as it were. And so, as we approach this book of Genesis, let's ask two questions. And the first one is about genre. What kind of book is this? You pick up a newspaper or a medicine bottle or a children's story, and they read differently. They read differently because they are different genres of writing with different intentions, even different vocabularies. For example, it's clear that, that Genesis is not a haiku, right? That, that would be a certain genre of poem, right? A haiku is a Japanese poem with a set, of, set number of syllables and lines. Uh, a Genesis in haiku form would be something like this, right? God created all. Adam broke what God made well. God is not done yet. Uh, it communicates, but there is more to the story, right? Genre is important because it clues you in on how to read something and what to expect. When Bible scholars debate the genre of Genesis, there are at least four genres that they typically mention, to which I will add a fifth and a sixth. So we're going we're gonna to think about six options as we think about what kind of book is this. Uh, the first option that maybe more modern scholars uh, suggest is myth. Uh, we don't like that word when it comes to Genesis uh, because myth, in my mind at least, implies something that is not true, not historical. Uh, other people define myth as that which explains experience, ideology, and origins. Uh, in fact, one writer says myth addresses those metaphysical concerns that cannot be explained by scientific discovery. And okay, that's fair enough, but for most of us, I would expect most of us who are listening to this sermon this morning, myth means something fanciful and fictitious. But Genesis records historical realities. It presents itself that way, and Jesus and the New Testament authors spoke of it that way. And so if we believe in Jesus and the inspiration of Scripture, we must read Genesis not as fanciful myth but as something else. And so option two, uh, option two, and, and this is particularly talked about when it comes to Genesis 1 and 2, but I, I need to suggest it here. Option two is that Genesis is science, right? It is, is Genesis scientific, one writer asked. And again, this is about as controversial as it gets when we come to the first two chapters of Genesis, right? But, but I'm not here asking if Genesis records what is true, but whether Genesis falls under the genre of scientific writing. You, you, hopefully you can see those are two different questions. And one writer gives four differences between Genesis and scientific writing. 
uh, first, they discuss essentially different matters, right? God and his relation to his people is the subject matter of Genesis. The natural world is the subject matter of science. Uh, second, they, they use different languages. And I don't mean Hebrew versus English, but, but every discipline has its own vocabulary. For something to count as scientific writing, it must contain a specialized vocabulary. Words like thermodynamics and homeostasis and cytokinesis, uh, words that I don't understand and cannot define. But scripture uses no such specialized vocabulary. In fact, it uses the language of everyday experience. If you want a technical phrase for that, scripture uses phenomenological language, language that describes phenomena as we experience them. In other words, normal, everyday speech. And uh, we, we do this every day, uh, use this kind of speech when we say things like, let's go outside and watch the sunset. There's nothing untrue about talking about a sunset, but scientifically we would talk about the Earth's rotation around the sun. But sunset is the language of everyday experience, no less true and factual, just less scientific. Uh, third, the, the writer says the purposes of Genesis and science also differ uh, in that Genesis is prescriptive answering the questions of who and why and what ought to be, whereas the purposes of science, yeah, the purpose of science is to be descriptive, answering the questions of what and how. Now, this is not to say uh, that uh, the what and how that Genesis gives us is not true, uh, but that it is not the main intent. And even when it does give what and how, it is not, the, it, it's not in scientific terms in the way it doesn't use scientific terms in the way it discusses those things. Again, it uses the language of everyday experience. Fourth, this writer says that Genesis and science are written to different communities, uh, which require, he says, distinct means for validation. Science, he says, speaks to the academic scientific community and requires empirical testing for validation. Genesis is addressed to the covenant community of God and requires the validation of the witness of the spirit to the heart. Now we could add a fifth difference, which is that science and Genesis each have a, a, a different means or had a different means of production. All right, science comes about by empirical observation. That, that, that might have been true of some of Genesis, but clearly not all of it. Genesis came about through revelation. But we'll come to that more in a moment. It's really important to see that Genesis and the whole Bible is not scientific writing. Otherwise, we end up like the detractors of Galileo, right, arguing that the earth cannot be moved physically because of Psalm 104, verse 5, which says, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. See, when we treat Scripture like scientific language, we end up misinterpreting it and arguing for the wrong things. Scripture is not a science text. That doesn't mean it isn't true, but we must be wise in the way we present and defend that truth, really in the way we understand, present, and defend that truth, lest we, we end up getting snookered by modernity into trying to defend what ought not be defended. Okay, if Genesis is not myth and not science, maybe it is history. 
Uh, now, this at least is getting closer, I think, to what Genesis is. Genesis records historical realities. The writer of Genesis presents himself as a historian, recording people and events of the past. Uh, the church confesses that, that what is recorded in Genesis actually happened in time and space. So it is historical. Though that, that's not quite the same thing as uh, asking, is, is the genre history, the genre of the writing? Uh, the, the only place we get into trouble there is if we think of Genesis as similar to modern history writing. Right? Historical writing is typically uh, someone making an argument about what happened based on primary source material. So historians uh, gather old letters, receipts, fragments of things, and place them together to make a conjecture about what actually happened. They, they want to put everything in chronological order and minimize metaphor and poetry in favor of strict, straightforward, flat vocabulary. History in this sense is more like science. It investigates primary source data and then formulates a thesis about what happened uh, that, that it then presents often in a specialized vocabulary, even if that just means simple and flat. Uh, but Genesis is not like that at all, right? It's full of metaphor, uh, especially anthropomorphism. Uh, as it talks about God's speaking creation into existence by his word, his, his repentance at the sin of mankind, his smelling the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice, or his setting himself a reminder so he doesn't forget his promises, that is the rainbow that he puts in the clouds. Uh, we're not to understand from these things that God has a tongue, or that he can believe that his former actions were wrong, or, or that he has nostrils to smell the smoke of burning flesh, or that he's prone to forgetfulness. Right? While, while Genesis is, is historical in that the events it records actually happened, it, it's not history writing in the modern sense of the world, word. Okay, then, if it's not... Uh, if the genre is not myth or science and not quite history, uh, maybe Genesis is theology. Uh, and of course, the answer is yes and no. Uh, Genesis, re Genesis records theological truths about God and man and sin and salvation, but it's not what we think of as systematic theology, at least. That is, it's not organized by topic, but as a story. And so then maybe we just need to say, okay, Genesis is a story. It's a narrative. And that's fine as long as we don't read story as meaning something fictitious, right? Genesis is not a bedtime story. It's not a fable or a fairy tale. Again, what it records is historical and true. So then, what is Genesis? I keep giving you all these options and saying uh, no or, or yes, but not quite. So, so then what is it? What is Genesis? Well, we could try to combine some of those genres, right? Genesis is a theological history narrating the beginning of creation, the beginning of man, and the beginning of God's relationship to man. Uh, that would be true. But the element that I think is most missing in all of the above is this. Genesis is revelation. Now, that's not really a genre, but that is what Genesis is. God's self-revelation. God tells the story of himself and the history of his dealings with his people so that we might know him, especially through his Son, Jesus Christ. 
Now, even as I talk about Genesis as God's self-revelation, that brings us to our next question, the question of authorship. Who wrote Genesis? So first, what kind of book is this? Well, it's a theological history narrating God's dealings with his people by which God reveals himself and his grace. That's what Genesis is. That's its genre, if, if we can put it in that way. But second, there's the question of author. Who wrote Genesis? Now, the, the truth is we have no idea who wrote many of the books of the Bible. Right? Who wrote Judges or Ruth? Who wrote the book of Kings or Chronicles? Who wrote Job? Or for that matter, Jonah? Now, Jonah is the main character of Jonah, but we're never told that he's the author of the book. We don't know, and that's okay. God inspired men to, to write books to reveal himself. Who those men were is often of little consequence. Not always, but often of little consequence. We just finished uh, last year a book, uh, a series on the book of Hebrews. And one of the things we said about the book of Hebrews is we don't know for certain who the author is. There are lots of conjectures, lots of suggestions, and one of them may be true. But in the end, we don't know. And that's okay. Because God ultimately is the one revealing himself through his word. Now, on some level, uh, uh, the, the, the fact that it's of little consequence, on some level, that is true of Genesis. The book of Genesis is what the book of Genesis is, regardless of who wrote it. It tells us what it tells us, regardless of who God used to do the telling. And so, on one level, we shouldn't get too hung up on authorship. God is the divine author of Genesis, whoever the human author might have been. Now, traditionally, Moses has been understood as the author of Genesis, and for good reasons. The author, authorship of Genesis is really tied up in the authorship of the first five books of the Bible, which are called the five books of Moses. Now, even within these five books, we see Moses writing things down. Uh, Moses wrote down God's curse on Amalek in Exodus 17. He wrote down uh, the covenant that God made with his people at Sinai, the so-called Book of the Covenant, according to Exodus 24. And while Leviticus and Numbers don't say Moses wrote it down, uh, they do say in the last verse of both books that the contents of the book were revealed by God to Moses, the implication that Moses wrote it down. Moses first preached the sermon that is Deuteronomy and then wrote it down, according to Deuteronomy 31 verse 24, calling it the book of the law. When we come to the New Testament, uh, the New Testament writers assume that Moses is the author of these books. Jesus says the purity laws of Leviticus are commanded by Moses in Matthew chapter 8, verse 4. He uses Moses as was the common designation of his day to refer to the first five books in contrast to the Psalms and the prophets. If Jesus, the one who died and rose, and who now has all authority in heaven and on earth, says that these books are by Moses, well, really, that's good enough for me. There are some difficulties, though. Deuteronomy, for example, records Moses' death and burial by God. Did Moses write that? The writer also records 30 days of weeping after Moses' death. Uh, the, the fact that no one knows where Moses was buried 
to this day and that no prophet like Moses has arisen in Israel since. Uh, those things seem to be written after the fact, in retrospect, looking back on the events that took place. The book of Numbers tells us that Moses was more humble than any other person on the face of the earth. Did Moses write that? Now, I guess if he were that humble, he could write that in all humility, but it seems unlikely. Uh, the genealogy of Genesis 36 says, uh, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. The phrase before any king reigned over the Israelites seems to be written in a time when kings did reign over the Israelites which would have at least been in the days of Saul or possibly even David and beyond. And so you have these hints that maybe Moses wasn't the author, which brings us uh, to the whole field of what has been called, uh, and, and which those questions blew up into the field of what has been called source criticism and the, the documentary hypothesis. And, and for about a hundred years, uh, there was a certain view of the five books of Moses that reigned. Uh, the idea was that this book, and we'll, we'll focus just on Genesis, but that this book had four different sources and some editor brought these four documents together into one book. The thought was that you could discern the documents by looking at the vocabulary and topics of each story. And so one document was called J for the Yahwist, because he always used the name Yahweh or Jehovah for God. And another was called E for the Elohist, or he used the name Elohim for God. And the third was called P for priestly. It focused on priestly matters. And the final document was called D for the Deuteronomist, who had his own set of concerns. And uh, the way this theory worked was any variation in language and any repetition in the story was seen as evidence of these four documents. And to be honest, over time, the theory got out of control and you went from four sources to six and eight and more. But also there were things in Genesis that this documentary hypothesis couldn't explain. And so sometimes a name for God was used in the wrong place for the documentary hypothesis. And so the Elohist used the name Yahweh or the Yahwist used Elohim and that had to be explained away as a later addition. But it's important to remember that these hypothetical documents do not exist. They were assumed to have existed, but we don't actually have any record of them. They were a hypothesis. They were theoretical documents. And while this idea reigned in biblical scholarship for about 100 years, from the 1880s to the 1980s, it did eventually meet its end though many people don't realize that, it, it takes often a generation for Bible scholarship, good or bad, to filter down into the church. But what ultimately toppled this hypothesis was a new kind of critical study of Scripture, what was called literary criticism. Now, literary criticism said this, okay, fine, uh, maybe there were these documents at some point, but what we have in our hand is the finished product and we must focus our scholarly energies on this. And what happened when they did so was something remarkable. Uh, they realized that there were other explanations for the data that the documentary hypothesis was using. Uh, 
Uh, for example, different language, right? Different names for God, different, different vocabulary for covenants uh, might not mean a different author, but a single author choosing different words to communicate a different nuance. Doublets in stories or uh, stories that seem to be repeated uh, may not be an example of a different source of the same story, but repetition for, for the, the purpose of storytelling, giving a different angle on the story, emphasizing some point. In fact, Hebrew poetry does this all the time, right? It is based on repetition and variation. Uh, one of the assumptions of the documentary hypothesis is that the original four sources were these completely consistent uh, 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 writings in the vocabulary they used, but that the final editor was kind of an idiot, right? He just put them together and they would say, he didn't realize that his sources contradicted one another and he put all these things together and, and then you kind of have this mishmash of a self-contradictory text, they say. Uh, but maybe the editor or the final author knew exactly what he was doing. Maybe he was a master storyteller and everything they see as inconsistencies or evidence of multiple authors is actually a master storyteller using every trick at his disposal to tell his story well. Which means we don't have any evidence of multiple authors. We have evidence of brilliant storytelling, which in my mind, brings us back to Moses. Uh, given all that we know, he, here's my own and I think a fairly common working understanding of the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Now remember this about Moses. Moses was raised and educated in Egypt. He was therefore a highly educated person. He likely was well-read, as well-read as anyone in his day. And so we might wonder, well, were there sources for Genesis? Did Moses use other things to write this book of Genesis? Well, maybe. Uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now that title, These Are the Generations Of, is a common title in Genesis. We'll talk more about that as we work through the book. But the phrase, uh, this is the book of the generations, that, that is not common. And it's possible that the genealogy that follows that phrase, this is the book of the generations of Adam, it's possible that the genealogy that follows was already written down. And Moses was quoting from that pre-written book. That's what he says. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now that, of course, could be true of all the genealogies in Genesis. I mean, really, you could ask, how else would Moses have known who was the father of Jared or Enoch or Methuselah? Well, he, he could have known by direct revelation, certainly. He could have known because someone else had written it down before him. Either way, the result is the same, the book of Genesis that we have before us. In fact, in Numbers chapter 21, verse 14, Moses explicitly quotes another book. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Moses quotes another book in Numbers chapter 21, verse 14. He says, therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, and then he quotes that book. Uh, the books of Kings and Chronicles do the same thing, by the way, right? One refrain in the book of Kings is the rest of the acts of such a such a king and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? 
Chronicles says similar things. Second Chronicles 9.29. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon from first to last, are they not written in the history of Nathan the prophet and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite and in the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat? Right? The writer points us to multiple other writings that contain the story of Solomon. Second Chronicles 12.15. Now the Acts of Rehoboam from first to last, are they not written in the Chronicles of Shemaiah the prophet and of Edo the seer. Second Chronicles 16.11, the acts of Asa from first to last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Uh, clearly, there were other written documents which recorded these events, the events of the kings of Israel, before the biblical writers came along. Why could that not have been the case with Moses when he sat down to write Genesis? Uh, that doesn't make him any less inspired, any more than it makes the writers of Kings and Chronicles less inspired. And so Moses, like any good historian, possibly used some primary source material, right? And so did Luke, by the way, when he wrote his gospel, as he tells us in Luke chapter 1, that he investigated the things that he was about to talk about. And so much for sources. What about editors, right? Did, did Moses write of his own death? Did he commend his own humility? Uh, did he write the words, before there were kings in Israel, before there was an Israel, and before there were kings? Or did others come along after Moses and edit what he had written? Well, let me ask you, before we answer that question, uh, another more important question. How will the answer to this question shape your faith? Does it matter if Moses was edited? Uh, cannot an editor be inspired as much as an author? Uh, the, the Psalms were clearly edited. Uh, that is, the Psalms were written by different people, right? Moses, David, Solomon, Asaph, Heman, Ethan, the sons of Korah. But at some point, uh, someone decided, hey, we should bring these together in a book. And, and I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the Psalms are actually separated into five books. And at the end of each of the five books is a doxology. So Psalm 41 verse 13 ends, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. And you see the same thing, uh, uh, some form of a doxology at the end of Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 106, and Psalm 150. And so someone came along at some point and organized the Psalms as we have them today and added those doxologies to the end of each of the five books. That doesn't make the Psalms any less inspired, right? God did that, right? He had the writers write the Psalms, and he had the editor edit the Psalms into the form in which we have them today. And so think of it this way. Uh, what if Joshua took all of the writings that Moses had made over his lifetime, and Joshua brought them together into the five books we know them uh, that we know today. He, he could have added the section on Moses' death uh, together with the mourning period that followed. And what if Samuel, the, the last of the judges, uh, the one who anointed the first two kings of Israel, what if he took what Moses and Joshua wrote and then he copied it down and made some editorial comments of his own? Uh, first Samuel tells us, in fact, in chapter 10, verse 25, that Samuel did, in fact, write down God's law in a book. Well, that would explain the references to the kings in Israel. And so Moses, Joshua, Samuel, that doesn't sound uh, too far-fetched for us, I don't think. 
But of course, even if we don't know whether and how Moses used primary sources or, or who might have edited it after the fact, that doesn't take away from divine inspiration. Right? God is the ultimate author of Genesis, which means we can say this about it. 2 Timothy 3.16, Genesis is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. But I think the most important thing that we can say about the book of Genesis is found on the words of Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 46 to 47. Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, ultimately, the writer of Genesis, Moses, whatever else we might say about him, wrote of Jesus. And it's through Genesis that we hear of the, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. It's through Genesis that we hear of the child of promise who will bring rest. It's through Genesis that we hear of the child of Abraham who will bless the nations. It's through Genesis that we hear of the substitute lamb whom God himself will provide. We'll have to wait for those things until next week. For now, let's remember to hear the word of God. Here is the book that he has given us, the, 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 the theological history that God himself has revealed, that we might know him and know his son, Jesus Christ. In light of those things, let's pray. Our Father, we, we do pray that as we approach this book, we would approach it with expectant hearts, ready to hear from you the, the story that you would have us hear through your servant Moses. Uh, give us soft hearts, ready to listen, expectant hearts, uh, ready to be convicted, encouraged, changed, challenged, and pointed to your Son, Jesus Christ. Open our hearts that we would be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word in a way that brings you glory and honor in your world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.